Have you ever experienced an injustice? I mean, a serious injustice, where maybe you lost your job unfairly, or you were robbed by evil men, or you were abused, neglected, mistreated, maybe misunderstood. Maybe you've been accused falsely. Maybe you've lost a loved one and in just deep pain just cried out, Why, God? Deep inside of every human heart, there is a longing for justice. In our very human nature, every one of us desires to be treated with fairness, to be treated with equality, to be treated honestly and with rightness. We all desire justice. But living in a fallen world that's tainted by sin, every one of us suffers injustice. We do. We're treated unfairly. Things happen that we cry out, it's not fair. And usually you're right. It's And so in those moments when we are suffering injustice, where do we turn? How do we respond? How can we find joy and peace while living in a world that is filled with pain and disappointment? We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We look to God. This is the only way that we will find joy and peace in the middle of disappointments and injustice. We run to the refuge of the character of God. We must know who God is. See, you and I, we were created for the pleasure of God. And your soul will find rest, which all of us yearn for. Your soul will only find rest when you are just richly abiding in the presence of Jesus through the power of His Spirit, through His inspired Word. May we truly know Jesus more deeply. And to that end of, of knowing Him and having Him fill us, we're continuing in our preaching series throughout the summer called Seeing God. And today, we're seeing the justice of God. So we're considering one of God's characteristics, that of being a God who is just. And we'll be looking to learn about who God is so that we can know Him better in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, if you want to turn there. And our goal is to see the significance of worshiping a God who is always just, living in a world that is filled with injustice, that is truly broken and fallen. So as you turn to Deuteronomy 32, let, let me give you some brief context of the book of Deuteronomy. See, God had promised his people to give them a land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. But his people did not trust him. You see, Moses sent in 12 spies to do reconnaissance in the land, and only two, Joshua and Caleb, believed God. 
The other ten said, nope, our God is not able to give us the land that he has promised. And so God then judged his people for not believing him, for not trusting him. And so for 40 years, they lived in the wilderness. Now, even then, in the middle of this judgment, God was still good to them in raining bread from heaven and giving them water from the rock. And he still provided for them. All this pointing, of course, to Jesus, who is the water of life and who is living bread. And so God showed mercy to them in this judgment, but that whole generation died. And now there's a new generation on the plains of Moab, just east of Jericho, on the other side of the Jordan River. And this new generation is ready to cross the Jordan River and to believe God and to walk in victory and to take the land that belongs to them, that God promised to them, to take it back from the enemy. And so before they go under Joshua's leadership, right before the prophet Moses dies, he preaches a very long sermon where he's explaining the law that was revealed 40 years earlier. And this very long sermon is the book of Deuteronomy. And so it's just Moses teaching and preaching on explaining how the law is to be lived out in the life of God's people. Now, the name Deuteronomy comes from the Greek words that means second law. And so that's all it means. Now, second as in repeated or restated. There's only one law. But Moses here is expounding. He's, he is teaching on it. And so that's why it's called second or a restated law. Deuteronomy, that's what the word means. Now, Deuteronomy 32, the chapter we'll be looking at here this morning, reveals the justice of God. And so as the context here is really picture a courtroom. Picture like the ultimate cosmic courtroom where there's a judge, and that is God. He is judge in this courtroom, and all of sinful humanity is on trial. So that is the setting here with this song that Moses sings as gospel inspires him. Now, we're not going to read all 43 verses, but we will read throughout so that we can understand it. So let's begin actually with the last verse in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and then we'll look at 32 verses 1 through 4. So Deuteronomy 31 verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So you see here that God wants all of creation to hear his voice because he is worthy to be adored because of his greatness, it reads here. All his works are perfect in creation. It says, for all his ways are justice. So everything that God does is justice. He says he is a God of 
faithfulness and without iniquity. So he is faithful with no sin, no darkness, no struggles. So he says he is just and upright. So this is defining who God is. It's saying this is what God is like. For all his ways are justice. He is faithful, no sin, perfectly holy. He is just and upright. So this is giving us a picture of the justice of God, what he is like. And we need to know what God is like so that we can then cast our souls upon him. Let me give you the main idea from Deuteronomy 32. So this is the primary truth of this whole chapter. is that God displays his glory by revealing and upholding justice. So God is displaying his glorious character, his glory, by revealing justice, revealing what it is, which is who he is, and then by upholding it. So God displays his glory by revealing and upholding justice. Let's look at what this looks like and then apply it by looking at this chapter. But as we jump in to understand this more, let me just say this here at this point. It's important for us to get the right context. Is built into every human heart is an undeniable knowledge that there is right and that there is wrong. We all know this intuitively. And we know that there must be an external standard beyond us, outside of us, that defines what is right and what is wrong. There has to be a measuring stick that all of us are under. The fact that every single human being has a moral code Every single people on the face of this planet that don't even have the Bible still know right from wrong. And every people on the planet, history of humanity, we have a sense of justice that is built into us. And this is evidence that God exists, that he is that standard. And it's with small children, because if you would get a, a room full of three-year-olds and line them up at an ice cream truck, and then have one go cut in line, you know, jump the queue, what are the rest going to all cry out? Oh, that's not fair. Stop him, teacher. Why? Three-year-olds have a sense of justice. They have the sense of, no, that's wrong. You can't do that to me. I was ahead of you in the queue. Who taught the three-year-olds this? natural. It's built in. We all have it. We all yearn to be treated rightly. Well, how do you define what right even is? God. God must exist because every one of us has this sense. God is, as he's revealed in his word, the standard of justice. As we just said, just and upright is he. So the character of God is the standard of justice by which we measure what is right and what is wrong. And our God not only reveals the standard, which is his own character, but he then ensures that that justice is always, hear me, always maintained and upheld in his world. Justice will prevail. Every single wrong will be made right. The justice of God means that every single person 
will one day get what they deserve based upon God's full understanding of how they lived. Now, we're going to keep looking at this, this chapter and understand how that works out in our lives because all of us have sinned. But God sees every heart. He sees every motive, every action, every thought, every word. And as the supreme judge ruling over his creation, he knows every detail of the case. And so therefore, in his infinite wisdom, he can make a good and fair ruling over the affairs of man. If you read the next few verses, verses 5 through 14, it describes God being faithful and his people being faithless. That's what you see in those verses. Let's read just to just get uh, a taste of that. Verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? So he calls them foolish and senseless. And then verse 10 says, He found him in the desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And so what you see here in these verses is that God's people, just describing humanity, so by extension, you and me, were described here as, again, foolish and senseless. And in this wilderness of life, God, who is our Father, He yearns to hold us, to care for us, to love us, to heal us. But we, just like they, we are the ones that push God away and don't want Him. Because we run after, we embrace our idols instead of our God who wants to richly bless us. And as we see here, and hold us tenderly and care for us. Verses 15 through 18, let's read those verses together. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him, and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that they had come recently, whom your father has never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you this is powerful language. It says that they forsook God. It says that they scoffed, so they mocked or, or laughed at, ridiculed his salvation. It says they provoked him to anger. And, and even God is jealous because he wants all of your heart. And instead, they were going after, it says, false gods. It says strange gods that are not even gods. It's actually demonic. It said they were unmindful of the rock who bore you, again pointing to Jesus, this rock that bore them, that protected them. Our salvation is built upon the rock, says in First Peter. This is all pointing to Christ. And it says that they forgot their God who gave them birth. They've forgotten God. And so what we see here in these verses is the heart of the essence of sin. What it is, it's idol worship. It's worshiping false gods. Sin at its essence is 
worshiping an idol. Now, I don't mean little statues around your house, idols. That's not what I'm talking about because most of us here in the room likely don't have statues that you bow down to. Maybe you do, but I would venture to say most of us in the room don't have statues that we're kneeling before and praying to. Now, those are idols, but what I'm talking about is much more sophisticated than that. It's much more complex than the idols you can easily see. What I'm talking about is what's going on inside of you in your heart. I'm talking about those things or those people that we would turn to, to fill us with joy, to give us a sense of meaning in life. The things that we become obsessed with. The things that we turn to for, for pleasure and joy. These are the idols that we manufacture in our hearts. And we turn to that instead of to Jesus to fill us. And so it's forgetting God and pushing him away. And at its root, it is sin. And so we stand guilty before this holy judge. And verses 19 through 22 make this very clear. We see the consequences of our sin against God. Let's read verse 22 to see that. For a fire is kindled by my anger, for it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And so God's judgment here, he's angry, and he's describing his judgment as fire. And so God's judgment is this holy, consuming fire that no one can escape. It says that devours the earth. And so there is judgment that is coming upon the whole earth. It's coming. And every one of us deserves to be consumed with this holy judgment fire. And through very poetic language in verses 23 through 33, it's describing the execution of God's judgment. So you see this courtroom. There's a judge. He, he makes the case. He describes how people have been living. So there's a case against them. And he says, this is, this is the judgment. And so this is the sentence, if you will. And, and so let's read a couple of verses. You just get a taste of that. Verses 23 and 24, he says, and I will heap disasters upon them, and I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. So again, poetic language describing the judgments of God. God hates sin. And this language of, of venom and on all of this destruction that you're seeing here, on being wasted and plague and pestilence, this is all describing God's judgment. Just like the fires, just another picture of his judgment. You see, God is holy and he is good. And sin has corrupted the world that God created good with the purpose of reflecting his glory. And so now the world does not reflect Instead, it distorts the glory of God, and so God is angry about that. And he ought to be because he is holy. This is, this is God's holy judgment, this burning anger at sin. And by the way, this displays God's glory. God's anger at sin is glorious. It is displaying 
God's glory in his justice, that he will maintain justice in order to be a good judge. Because a bad judge fails to uphold the law. A evil judge lets criminals go free on technicalities or because he got bought off and there's corruption. And so bad and evil judges fail to uphold the law. But a good judge upholds the law. And God is a good judge. He will not let criminals go free. The very existence of hell, which is a real place, the existence of hell displays the glory of God. It shows that God upholds justice. It shows that God cares about holiness and that he hates sin. And deep down inside, every one of us desires for justice to be maintained. We've already established that that we all hate being treated unfairly. We hate it when a criminal goes free. It bothers us, and it's not right when a, when a criminal is not sent to prison. And it should bother us. We should want justice to be upheld. But here's the problem. We are just as guilty before God. And we can deny it, or we can try to hide it, or lie to ourselves, but deep down inside, every one of us knows that we fall short. We know that we don't always do what's right, and we have not obeyed all of God's laws, and we have personally offended Him. And so we know this. And the author C.S. Lewis, in his very well-known book, Mere Christianity, makes a point well. He says, these then are two points I want to make. First, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way, and they cannot get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave that way. They know the law of nature, and yet they break it. These facts are the foundation for all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe that we live in. So we have all broken the laws of God, and we know this. And yet what we try to do is pile on good works on top in order to somehow make up for it. But if you have a criminal who stands before a judge and he says, Judge, I, I only broke one law. I just, I just robbed one bank. That was it. But I'm, I'm a really good person. I love my dog, and I pay my taxes on time, and I obey all the traffic laws, and I'm good to my friends. I even shared the money with all my friends. I'm a really good person. I, I do all of these good things. And the judge says, yeah, no, that's true. All that's good. But you still broke the law. No, 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 no but I'm doing good things. You still broke the law. It doesn't matter how much good you think you're doing or how much good you want to do to pile up. The reality is that you and I stand guilty before God. 
if God were to declare us anything but guilty, he would stop being a just and good God. There are no get-out-of-jail-free cards with God. Left to ourselves, we are in a hopeless situation, and we ought to let the weight of that weigh heavy on us. But we praise our God who made a way to maintain his justice, to be a good judge, and to also show mercy, and to do so with consistency, where he is not ignoring sin, he's being a good judge, uphold the law, while also, in his infinite wisdom, making a way for sinners to be forgiven. This is only possible through the infinite wisdom of God to be just, and to show mercy. Verses 34 through 42 describe the promise of mercy. Let's read two verses in that section, verses 35 and 36. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And to see it says that vengeance and recompense belong to God. Those two words together are describing God's holy anger against sin and his passion to do what is right and to uphold justice. Verse 36, though, says that God will vindicate his people and have compassion on them when their strength is gone. Now, how is that even possible? Again, a good judge doesn't let criminals go free. He doesn't just ignore their sin. Well, this good judge is not ignoring their sin. God doesn't ignore it. He deals with it. Every sin that's ever been committed or will be committed must be paid for for God to maintain his justice. So God's plan of salvation is accomplished through judgment. So God vindicates, he justifies sinners, declaring them legally not guilty so he can then display his mercy and compassion. But how can he do that? Verse 43 tells us in the same chapter, verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all of gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. That last phrase is very important for us to see how God has done this. It says that, that he cleanses his people. And so to cleanse, the word literally means to cover or to make atonement, which is why several English translations actually use the word atonement in this verse. Because that's describing what this cleanse means. It means to make atonement. And so the way that God made a way is through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He alone is holy and perfect, and he maintained all all the law. He never 
broke one. So Jesus alone, being fully God and fully human, could pay the debt that we owe to God. And so he made a way. The cross is a collision between God's justice and his mercy coming together on the cross. And you see, God, that he is not ignoring sin. It is all being paid for in full with Jesus on the cross. And so God is still a good judge who does not let criminals go free. Every sin has been paid for by the perfect lamb on the cross. And yet the cross also shows God's love and his mercy, his compassion, where Jesus paid the price for you and for me. Every single sin committed will be paid for. Either you will pay for it yourself for eternity in a place called hell. And that is still God vindicating his glory and his justice. And you are having justice enacted on you for eternity by paying for it yourself. Or you can trust with all of your heart in the work that Jesus did on the cross and believe that he already paid it all. He was already punished in your place. And so we're saved by faith alone. If we would, with all our hearts, trust him and stop trying to earn what you could never earn. We repent and we trust our God who is good. How do we respond? Let me give you three thoughts from this text on how we can respond to the justice of God. Because all of this teaching on how God displays his glory through his justice, and of course by maintaining his justice, has to apply. Otherwise, it's just theology that will fuel your head. And that's not the point. It's to see your life change to reflect more of Christ and know him more. So let me give you three ways that we must respond to the justice of God. Number one, Remember your justification. You have to daily remember that you are justified. Now, justification means the opposite of condemnation. So to condemn is to declare someone guilty. To justify is to declare someone not guilty. And so justification is a legal declaration that you are before God declared not guilty guilty. So Romans 8, 1 makes it so profoundly clear. For now there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so you don't have to earn God's love. You already have it. You don't have to fear what tomorrow may bring. Your soul is already secure. You don't have to carry the burden of your sin. Jesus has already removed that. You don't have to live with sinful patterns. You've been made new. But if you forget that you've been justified before God, when we forget our standing before God, you know what happens? This is subtle. You know what happens to us? We think that we have to earn it. Subtly, we think this. And so we think, oh, I have to be a good religious person, and I have to, I have to earn God's love by, by being good. And you know what? That's a heavy burden. That's heavy when you think that you have to do enough good to earn God's love. And under the weight of trying to earn it, 
it's just so heavy. You're going to turn to sinful patterns to find relief, to find a sense of comfort or of hope. Because you're so burdened. But do you want your soul to really heal? And freedom from your anxiety, freedom from your sinful patterns or addictions, freedom from hating yourself. You want to truly become the man or woman that God has called you, and even right now you sense the Spirit calling you to be. Here's the foundation. Remember your justification. Remember that you have no condemnation, that you are accepted by God. You already have his approval. He loves you. You are safe with Jesus. He's your rescue. I know you probably had many people that have failed you, but God will never fail you. And the cross is the proof. We must meditate on God's word and spend time in prayer. And to do so in community with other brothers and sisters. We have to pour our hearts out to God and know that he cares. See, with whatever you're struggling with, whatever injustice or whatever disappointment you're, you're dealing with, all I can say is quiet your soul before your God and remember who you are. You belong to Jesus. You have hope. You are not condemned. He sees and he knows and he cares. You keep looking to Jesus. You don't have to carry the burdens anymore. It's paid so you remember your justification. Number two, you rest in God's justice. You rest in his justice. Remember, we live in a world that is unfair. We all know this. We're going to be mistreated. We're going to suffer injustice. We will. This world is broken. And when we face deep disappointment, what we usually want to do is we want answers. We want to know, God, Why? Why did this happen to me? What are you trying to do? Why don't you love me? We ask these kinds of questions on why, why. Well, God does love you. You have to know that for a fact. The cross proves it. But the reality is that when we ask why God, he's not going to tell you. Like, you have to know this. He's not going to tell you why. A, he doesn't have to. He is sovereign, you are not. Read Job. He makes that clear to him. But, I mean, I think, I don't know this, but I truly believe that he, even if God tried to explain it to you, it would be like teaching calculus to a four-year-old. They're not going to get it because they can't. It's too complicated. And if God would even try to explain why to you, it wouldn't comfort you. It would not comfort you. You're not going to understand. It's too complex. God sees the whole cosmic eternal picture and how everything fits together, but you don't have that kind of vision. 
And so God's not going to answer the why questions, but he does something so much better than answer your why questions. Jesus offers you himself. He says, you have me. Just rest in me. Just trust me. I know you don't see it. I know you can't, but I do. And the cross proves that I love you and I've got this. And so you just, just rest with me. Stop the anxiety and, and the fretting and stop the why that you're never going to understand that. Have me. Let me fill you. When you treat it unfairly, because it's, it's when, it's not if. Know that God is a good judge. Again, the cross proves it, that he won't give one inch on sin. You can trust him, hide yourself in him, so that you can feel this pain and anger and fear just dissipating. Cry out to your father. Cry out to him. Write out your prayers, your struggles in a journal. Just pour out your heart honestly. Remember, he sees your pain and he knows he's not ignoring you. He's working all out. In the end, every wrong will be made right. Justice will prevail. You rest in the justice of God that he will not forsake you. You can trust him with tomorrow. So due to the cross's work, Christ's work on the cross, rather, we don't have to live with disappointment. We do have hope. So we rest in the justice of God. And last, as we close, we refuse to get revenge. We refuse to get revenge. When someone hurts you, the natural response is to want to get payback. That's just what we do. But we just read that vengeance belongs to God. When we refuse to forgive, we lose our joy and our peace. You have to trust God that he's going to take care of that situation. And he'll take care of it as, as a good judge, fairly and fully. He can be trusted with your hurt. But let's just speak honestly for a moment here. If you have been hurt really deeply, then forgiveness is going to look more like a process than an instantaneous thing. Because you're going to have to work through the emotions of how deeply you were, you were hurt. And it can, I mean, the reality is that emotional healing can be slower and longer, more painful than even physical healing. So maybe today you say, I can't do it, Pastor. I can't forgive him or her just like that. It was too profound, too deep, too evil. I just, I just, I just can't forgive it. Okay. God sees and he knows. Maybe you can't forgive him or her today. But today, can you commit before God that you're going to forgive? Commit that you're going to work towards that. That you're going to pour out your hearts before God. That you're not going to run to idols to satisfy you, but instead you're going to turn to Jesus. And in that pain, you're going to trust him to heal you so that soon in the future, you'll be able to truly, before God, have a soul that's healed where you can truly forgive. 
and experience that joy and peace that he promises. There is hope. You have to believe this, that this text pointing to Jesus gives us hope. Not just for today, but for tomorrow. His grace will be supplied. Our God is good. He is merciful, but he's also holy and just. And we praise God for the cross and what it accomplished for us. Have you tasted the mercy of God? No, I mean this. Really ask yourself this. Have you tasted of the mercy of God? Because if you don't, or if you haven't, if you refuse to taste of the mercy of God in this life, then you're going to taste the judgment of God for eternity. It's your choice. You can choose to enjoy his mercy and humbly bow down and thank him and praise him for his mercy and live a life for his glory that's full of joy and peace in the middle of turmoil. Or you can reject and say no. And you can, you have that choice. But forever you're going to be tasting the judgment of God. So I pray today, if you have never repented and trusted in Jesus, that you will do so today. Give him your life. And if you don't know what that looks like or how to do it, please come talk to me. I would love to pray with you and show you how to follow Jesus and to experience this joy that we're talking about. He died for you and was resurrected gloriously in victory. And so I pray that we will be a church that sees this infinite glory of God and that we will then display it to Abu Dhabi and to the nations. Will you pray with me? Our most loving and holy Father, you are so good. We know that you are just and everything that you do is right. And we thank you that we have tasted of your mercy because your son tasted your justice. And so we thank you so much for the hope that you fill us with. I pray for anyone right now in this room who does not know you, who has never surrendered their life to you. I pray that you would grip them and that they would respond to you today with complete trust and with repentance, that they would know you and experience that joy and peace that comes through your spirit. And we pray it for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.